Hi, everybody. Hi. You guys doing good? Good. Um, are you looking forward to that extra hour of sleep next week? Yes. Now, what that means is you don't get your traditional hour of sleep while I'm preaching, okay? So stay awake during the preaching next week. You have no excuses. Uh, are you guys excited to dig in and find out about Noah? Yes. Well, too bad. We're not doing that this week. Um, that's next week, okay? We're going to get there, but um, today what we're going to be doing in our study of Genesis is we're going to be seeing why the famous story of Noah happened in the first place. Um, we're going to try to get some understanding of what led up to that and why and how so that when we really grapple with that one next week, we'll be uh, doing it in context. So let me start by just making this statement. People are incurably religious. People everywhere are incurably religious. That It's true in every culture. It's true in every nation. It has been true in every time. People are religious. And we are beginning to get an understanding of why that is, because as we've been going through Genesis, we saw in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 how that came about, right? God creates everything. He creates the entire universe, and the crowning glory of that creation is mankind, male and female, created in his image, right? And he creates us to have a relationship with him, and that whole thing gets messed up. And we saw the way that got messed up last week. We were in chapter three of Genesis and we saw that we have man created in the image of God, paradise, a perfect relationships between human beings, perfect relationship between God and people. And all of that goes out the window when man uses his gift of free will to rebel against God and everything begins to crumble. And what we're going to see is that crumbling effect continue now as we go on through Genesis. Um, if, you, if you recall, Romans chapter 1, Paul's writing in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that God has placed within every single human being a knowledge of him. That everyone is born with a knowledge of God. And he goes on to tell us in Romans 1 that if that was not enough, he also shows us his power in creation so that when you look at the universe around you, you have to actually shut off your mind completely to believe that somehow that universe exists in perfect precision without a creator, that the design of the universe just happens without a creating God. So God puts a knowledge of us uh, of himself within us. He gives us evidence of himself all around us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 teaches us that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. So that is to say that not only do we have this knowledge of God because it's within us, not only do we have evidence of God all around us, but we have an understanding just in an innate awareness by being human that this is not all there is that we're created for eternity and not for time. So God has done all of that for us, and, and human beings, just by nature of being human, are spiritual beings. We all have some inkling that somewhere, somehow, there must be some kind of God with whom we have to do. And so what happens is people try to figure that one out. And when you go a little bit further and you look at more evidence, you realize that while there is a God who created everything, and while man was made in his image, and paradise was the plan for God, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Amen? Is that pretty obvious? So something has gone terribly wrong. These are things that human beings everywhere understand. We don't all come to the same conclusions about the whys and the wherefores, but everybody is aware that there is a God. Everybody is aware that uh, there's something terribly wrong and that one of the things that's wrong is between us and God, right? So we look around us and we see that people have problems between person and person. Nations have problems between nation and nation, right? Groups have problems between group and group. And we have a problem between us and God. 
So something has clearly gone terribly wrong. So we get involved in religious activities in an effort to try to make it right. And this is not new. This is something that has been happening throughout all of human history. That is why people get involved in crazy cults and shave off their heads and sell flowers at the airport, right? That somehow you you look at it and go, what what are you thinking? I'm thinking that there must be a God and there's something terribly wrong between me and him and I need to find a way to get that right. That would be the answer. It's the reason why every year in India, um, in various places, they have this um, ceremony, this religious ritual where people, in an effort to please the gods and bring luck upon their family, drop babies from a tower 50 feet high. Are you aware of that? Look at this. enough of that? Yeah, this, is, uh, this goes on uh, in various places throughout India. It is a way to appease the gods and a way to somehow make up the gap between us and the gods and to bring luck upon our families. And we do it by showing this crazy faith of some sort that causes people to drop their children from a tower. It's the reason that throughout history, from culture to culture, there have been countless cultures where the norm for worshiping their gods has been to sacrifice their own children. It's the reason that uh, in many parts of Africa that I have been in and seen this with my own eyes, people dress up in crazy costumes and, and chant as they follow a witch doctor in a parade throughout the streets cutting themselves. It's the reason that Muslims feel this need to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's the reason that, that for hundreds of years, Devout Catholics have been climbing the steps of St. Peter's Basilica on their knees in an effort to show penance. It's the reason why throughout ancient times and even in some places today, people whip themselves to the point of bleeding as a way of showing their repentance. It's, It's the reason that in some groups people get baptized for the dead. It's the reason that other people repeat ritualistic prayers, often holding on to beads so they make sure they do the counting right and get all of the prayers correct. It's the reason why some people sit through worship services in a language they don't speak and and, and where there are um, traditions that they don't understand. They stand when they're told to stand, kneel when they're told to kneel, sit when they're told to sit, all the while not knowing what is being said or done, but believing that somehow they're engaging with God when they do it. We know there's a God. We know we're supposed to have a relationship with him. And we know that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong in that relationship. So all religion, all man-made religion, is nothing more than man recognizing the gap between himself and God and looking for a way to fill that gap. That's what man-made religion is. Since the garden, people have been trying to make things right with God. And we've been trying to do it in our own ways. And it's never worked. Last week we saw in Genesis 3 that our ancestors used the gift of their free will to rebel against God. And when they did, all hell broke loose. And and we saw that where there had been no shame, there was suddenly shame. We saw that where there had been no fear, there was suddenly fear. We saw that where there had been no broken relationships, there were suddenly broken relationships. Everything was broken all of a sudden when sin entered the system because when sin entered the system, a break with God entered the system and death entered the system. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter four. Hopefully by now you know where to find Genesis. If not, first book of the Bible, it's easy. 
just some, probably t- page five or six of your Bible, um, you'll get to Genesis 4. Follow along. Let me just give you the first seven verses of Genesis 4. <clears throat> now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Now here's my reminder. You're going to get this throughout this book. The reminder is, this is not an exhaustive world history. This is not even an exhaustive history of the family of Adam, right? The book of Genesis is essentially the story of God's people beginning with Abraham, and we see beginning in verse 12, the calling of, or chapter 12, the calling of Abraham, and the next 38 chapters are about Abraham's family and his line becoming the nation of Israel, all to help us to see that God is going to bring a Messiah that we all need regarding, regardless of our um, national origin or our bloodline, right? So all we're doing in, not all, one of the things we're doing in the first several chapters of Genesis is laying the foundation for that story. We are not being told everything we want to know, and it drives us nuts. I get that. We all have questions, the what ifs and what about and where, where from and all that kind of stuff. And one of the questions that comes up so often, so often around this point is, wait a second, how, how, when, when did this happen? We're not given a timeline. We're not told how long between one verse and another verse, but time is passing very, very fast. We're just getting this, oh, and here's another interesting, important thing. Oh, and then there's this, and this is important, and then there's this, and this is important, and in between, there's a bunch of stuff we don't get. For instance, we don't get told where Cain got his wife. We don't know. I wish I had a dollar for everybody who ever asked me that especially when I was teaching youth Sunday school. Um, I w- but the answer is we don't know. We don't know how much time passed. We do know that people lived for many hundreds of years at this time and that they were fruitful and multiplying. We get to find out about Cain and Abel because this story comes into play and becomes very important as a foundational story for where we're going in Genesis. But we're not told about their brothers and sisters, how many more children they had, how old were they when this happened? Were they two or 300 years old when this happened? Were they 12 years old when this happened? My guess is teenagers, but you know, I don't know, right? (laughs) If you've ever had two teenagers in the house at the same time, parents, right? Are you with me? Are you surprised they didn't kill each other at some point? Well, these ones did, right? We don't know how old they were when this happened, but obviously, there had to be more offspring for Adam and Eve. There, there were sisters that they had to marry, and then they continued on down the line and so forth. We're not given all of that detail. But here's one thing we are told. There's a giant question that comes to people's mind when they read this depiction of what happened. And we actually get the answers from this in Scripture. The question is this. What was wrong with Cain's offering? It, it says they both brought an offering, right? We're told that, that uh, Cain is a farmer, so he grows crops, and he brings some fruit and vegetables or something along those lines as an offering to God. We're told that Abel is a, is a herdsman of some sort. He had flocks and herds that he cared for, and so that he brought from his flock something as an offering to God, and we're told that God liked one and didn't like the other. And we're not told why, unless we dig in. Because the first thing we find out about what was wrong with Cain's offering is this. It was not just the offering that was the problem. If you go back and look at verse 4, it says, Abel, on his part, also brought of the 
firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. It doesn't say just that he had no regard for the offering. It says he had no regard for Abel and his offering. He had regard for Abel and his offering, but he had no regard for Cain and his offering. The issue was not simply an issue of the offering, although that comes into play and we'll hear more about that. But the issue is not simply an issue of the offering. Here's something we need to understand. If you're taking notes, this is something to write down. All worship is about the heart. So anytime that you see God being critical of human worship, he's critical because of our hearts. It's not the details of the worship that are essential to him. It is the condition of our hearts. Worship is meant to be a relational thing between us and God. And what we see here is that this was personal. God had a problem with Cain, not just his offering. In fact, probably the safest argument is that his offering was neither here nor there, but the condition of his heart was a problem. So God has a problem with Cain and his offering, but Abel and his offering are received. See, to participate in an act that is normally associated with worship is not the same as worshiping. Let me say that again. To participate in an act normally associated with worship is not the same as worshiping. Let me try to explain this in a way that I bet you can relate to. Because I'll bet you everyone within the sound of my voice right now can relate to the idea that one time or another, you participated in a religious act that wasn't actually worship in your heart. Some of you did it within the last half an hour. That, that we, we go through certain motions, we do certain religious things. Here on Sunday mornings, we gather, and the band comes up, and there are people who are gifted musicians who lead us in song, and these songs are amazing in multiple ways. We try to choose our songs very carefully around here. And next week's gonna be really interesting because we're gonna throw back to some songs and we're gonna... Lord, I lift your name on high and shout to the Lord and all that kind of stuff. But, but even then, we try to choose songs that connect with people on an emotional level because we believe that uh, worship and emotion are deeply connected and on an intellectual level because the mind and worship are deeply connected because what did God say? He said that we're to love the Lord our gods with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every bit of us is supposed to be involved in worship. So when I say worship is about the heart, I'm saying it, it's a gift to God that we give from the inside. And I personally have on more than one occasion sang all the right words to a theologically correct song, experienced the emotion in the room, and had my heart far from God while I was doing it. See, Jesus spoke about this. Leave your finger in Genesis, but flip over to Matthew chapter 15. Go to the first book of your New Testament, book of Matthew chapter 15, and, and Jesus is talking about um, certain ones of the Jews who got all the details right in terms of the rules of the worship ceremony, but he still didn't accept their worship. Listen to what he says. He's actually quoting Isaiah here. Here's what Jesus says. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. That's uh, chapter 15, verse seven. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So they Honor me with their lips. The words are the right words. The activities are the right activities. And yet, their heart is far from me, and therefore, their worship is unacceptable, he says. It's vain. It's wasted. It's empty. I'll have no part of it. So, there's a problem with Cain's offering 
And the beginning of the problem is not with the offering, but with Cain himself. There's a second thing I want to point out that has more to do with the offering, though. And that is, Cain's offering was bloodless. And that's a problem. See, the Jewish understanding of sin and sin offerings has always been that sin is a capital crime. And the reason that the Jewish and say that again, the Jewish and Christian tradition has always taught that sin is a capital crime is because the scripture teaches that sin is a capital crime and we've seen it already in our study of Genesis. He said, do not eat from the fruit of this tree. If you do, you shall surely what? Die. Sin and death inextricably linked, right? Jesus said, I came to give them life and that more abundantly. Sin says, I come to take away your life and the punishment for sin is death. And that carries through from Genesis to Revelation. Sin is a capital crime. So from the time that God warned Adam, he explained him about that. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, when it all fell apart and sin enters the picture in the Garden of Eden, what does God do? Kills animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve using animal skins. He he ultimately implements a sacrificial system. And, And you may think, well, the sacrificial system doesn't come till Moses. Not true. It gets, uh, it gets recorded in Moses, but clearly there was a sacrificial system in place already at this time, and we're going to see that in a second. But the whole sacrificial system, starting from the garden forward, always involves the death of some animal, right? And that is horrific. It's, it's terrible, God has given mankind dominion and responsibility over creation, and man's sin results in death even to animals. And so whether it's a turtle dove or a pigeon or it's a, it's a goat or a bull or a lamb or whatever that has to be sacrificed, there is this constant system in place for the Jews where animals are put to death. Blood is spilled as a symbol for how God will one day take away the sins of the world. And when the Passover comes, God says, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt, so I want you to slaughter a lamb, and I want you to put his blood above the door and on the doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over the house because the blood has been shed in that house. So there's this picture, all of these things pointing to who? Jesus, right? That there's one day going to be a bloody cross. Sin is, was, and always will be a capital crime. So the sacrificial system just gives us this vivid picture of how horrific it is and how it's always tied to death. And that, by the way, is why we, looking back upon the cross 2,000 years later, still celebrate the Lord's Supper to be reminded that a body was nailed to a tree and that blood was shed, and that one had to die for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we don't have the details of when and how this sacrificial system got instituted, but we do know that it was already in place by this time, because if you're in chapter 4, you'll see that in verse 3, it says, it came about, and this is back in Genesis, sorry, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering, etc., etc. It came about in the course of time. Now that phrase, in the course of time, it may be translated differently in a different English t- translation. The reason it's different in all the translations is because it's not a word-for-word thing, it's a colloquialism. It doesn't make much sense on its face. And the colloquialism basically means when the right time had come. When the appointed time had come, when the right number of days had passed, at the right time, at the right time, the appointed time, that's when they began to bring their sacrifices. This doesn't seem to have been just an individual thing with one of them, but they both come because it's time, and it's time to present sacrifices to God. So Abel brings the first fruits of his flock, 
right? So he literally takes, if you have, if you have a, a male sheep and a female sheep that mate, and, <clears throat> and the first offspring is a lamb, that's the first fruit of your flock. You take that first fruit and you bring the first fruit to God. You kill it, you cut it up, you butcher it, and you bring the fat parts to God. Now, why would you do that? God is not hungry. What, why, would, why would you do that? It's, it's twofold. Number one, the blood is necessary as a reminder of the fact that sin is a capital crime. But number two, you bring the fat parts because they're the best parts. That's symbolic of the fact that you're offering God your best. And you bring the first fruit. And the reason that you bring the first fruit, and this will get unpacked all throughout the Mosaic Law, but the reason you bring the first fruit is because it's an act of faith to bring the first fruit. I mean, if you take that first lamb and you butcher that lamb and give it to God, what if there's no more lambs, right? If you take the first of your crop and you take that and give it to God, what if it doesn't bear fruit again? And so there's a step of faith involved here. In fact, in, Gen- uh, excuse me, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith chapter where it tells us all these people who live by faith, Abel is in there. It tells us, I think it's Hebrews 11:4. it says, it was by faith that Abel brought the first fruits to God. So, so it's this offering that says, A, I recognize how grave sin is. And B, I do this by faith, trusting you, God. I give everything to you, knowing that what I get back will be whatever you give me. And I'm going to put my trust in you. So one offering out of these two is a heartfelt act of sacrificial worship that recognizes the enormity of sin and therefore the enormity of the goodness of God. And the other seems to be a religious ritual with no significance whatsoever in the heart of Cain. No heartfelt worship, no recognition of the greatness of God, no recognition of the, of the d- d- deep darkness of sin, nothing. So a first fruits offering is a sign of trust in God. And, and a, a, an unwillingness to do that is a sign of a lack of trust in God. So how does God respond to Cain's faulty offering and Cain's faulty heart. Look at verse uh, six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Guys, isn't it good to know that God is a pursuing God? That, that our God is a God of second chances? He, you know, he doesn't just kill Cain for his uh, inappropriate pseudo-worship. He instead comes to him and says, hey, Cain, you did the wrong thing. That's why you're, so- you're sad. That's why you're bummed out. You need to do the right thing. And when you do the right thing, your joy will return to you because it's in that relationship with me that you get joy. He offers him this second chance. And Cain's response <coughs> is to kill his brother. Even when we're angry with God, even when we're rebelling against him, he still loves us. Even when we have been giving God the cold shoulder, he still pursues us. Even when we are to blame for what's wrong in our lives, God still reaches out to us. But at some point after he has come to us again and again and said, there's still time, turn back. There's still time, turn back. There comes a point where there is not still time. And that's what happened with Cain. Go to verse seven again, because I don't want you to miss this. There's a huge principle in verse seven I would love to teach a whole weekend seminar on, but I have like two minutes to give it today, okay? There's this principle in verse seven. Don't miss it. God speaking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. See, this is the exact opposite of what Western culture teaches. In our culture, we have bought into this idea that somehow if you're sad, that's what countenance fallen means, if you're depressed, if you're discouraged, if you're bummed out, if you're hurting, that it's because of what's been done to you. 
And if somebody has treated you badly, then your countenance will fall. If somebody has um, hurt you in your past, your countenance will fall. If you've gone through trials that have left you scarred, your countenance will fall. And so much of um, today's approach to counseling and therapy is built around the idea that if you're sad, that's the problem. If we could get you not sad, then you would be able to do the right thing. But the reason you're failing in life is because of these terrible things that have happened to you and therefore you're sad and you don't have the emotional energy to be successful in life. So we've got to somehow deal with those things so you won't be sad. And if you're not sad, life will be better. But God comes to Cain and says, if you do better, you won't be sad. It's completely turned upside down. God says, if you'll trust me, I will bring you joy. If you will follow me, instead of making excuses and pointing fingers and talking about all that has happened to me and all the bad stuff and all the people who owe me and all that kind of stuff, if I can just say, listen, I can have joy again. Some of, some of us are in marriages that are just draining the life out of us. And, and you know, our spouses don't treat us right. And we're hurting and we're discouraged and we've lost the energy to even invest in that relationship because it's, we've just had enough. And so we give up. God says, if you do what I would call you to do, if you will do the right thing in your relationship with your spouse, then your joy will return to you even if your spouse doesn't change. But we get so caught up in change my spouse, change my boss, change my parents, change my kids, change my sickness, change my whatever, and then I'll be okay, God. God says, no, trust me, and then your joy will return to you. The Cain principle. But how did Cain respond to God's merciful invitation? Look at verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. That's how he responded to God's offering of mercy. That's how he responded to God's invitation to worship appropriately. He let his anger control him, and he went out and sinned more. It's an incredibly sad picture. Because as we've already seen, sin always has consequences. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then the Lord kicked Cain right in the head. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> That's what I would have done if this were my kids. Um, verse 10, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said, Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain that no one finding him would slay him. Now, again, there's stuff it doesn't tell us. I don't know what that sign was. I don't know if it was a little tattoo across the forehead that said, if you kill Cain, I'm going to mess you up. Or I don't know if it was like a neon thing that floated above his head. When he, I have no idea what it was. But God put a sign on Cain. But Cain now takes the curse of his father. Remember the curse of Adam, the farmer? Now it's going to be hard for you to farm. You're going to have to work hard just to put bread on your family's table. You're going to have to go out there and break your back every day. By the sweat of your brow will you provide for your family as a farmer. To Cain, he says, no more farming for you. The ground will never give you any more food. He, he wouldn't bring God his first fruits. And now there's nothing more for him. You, you won't have any land. You'll be a vagrant. You'll be a wanderer. Wherever you go, you're going to be dependent upon the kindness of others. And Cain says, but they won't be kind to me. 
And God says, I'm going to make sure they don't kill you, but you're going to struggle. Sin has consequences. Now, we get into the genealogy of Cain at this point, right? And there's some genealogies in Genesis, and you know how we all love genealogies, right? A bunch of names we can't pronounce and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to read you all these names, but I just want you to notice something. Um, As we get into this uh, genealogy of Cain, um, the seventh generation is very significant. And let me just give you a little quick um, hermeneutics lesson. The the number seven is very significant in Hebrew literature, okay? Now, there's, there are several numbers that are very significant in Hebrew literature. Uh, seven, uh, 10, 12, 40. These are numbers that re- just repeat and repeat and repeat. And, and they're like waving flags when you see these numbers in Hebrew literature to say, hey, this is important. Pay attention to this right here, okay? So we go down and we're reading these names in the genealogy and we come to, where is it? Verse 19 of, um, uh, no, that's not correct. Um, Yeah, verse 19 of chapter four, we get the seventh generation of Cain. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, etc., etc. And it goes down and starts just giving us more names of people, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so forth. And we get all these generations, right? But in this seventh generation, in this key generation, he stops and says, let me tell you about this guy, Lamech. Lamech took for himself two wives, This is the first time in the history of the world that we see polygamy. We we have a situation where, just as in in, uh, all throughout history and cultures everywhere, you have men who have more power than women, and the men abusing that power and taking advantage of women, okay? Now, listen, I... I'm not trying to preach a message on misogyny. I'm just talking about the reality. All throughout history, part of the fall is that those people who have the most power cannot be trusted with it. And they tend to abuse people who have less power. And it doesn't matter whether it's financial power, political power, or physical strength, or whatever. Those who have more power have a temptation to use that power against those who have less power. And so now we have a situation where you have a man taking two wives after Genesis clearly said that marriage is one man to one woman and that two shall become one. And so we're redefining marriage here if we're Lamech and we're going to have two wives And by the way, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see multiple wives for men throughout the pages of this book. This is the beginning of that trend. People abusing people. And that happens with Lamech. He has two wives. And that becomes a normal condition with this line. But who is this guy, Lamech? Look at uh, verse 23. After giving us some more generations, it comes back and says, remember that Lamech guy, the seventh generation? Let me tell you, he wrote a poem. He wrote this poem to his wives and it gives us the poem. Here it is, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, this is the very, very earliest version of rap. Okay? That's what we have here. <laughs> this is this, this really cutting-edge poem for the Hebrews, right? And essentially what he's saying in his poem is, I am the man. I don't need God to protect me. I will protect myself. And you mess with me and you will pay the price because my forefather, Cain, killed his brother. And if anybody messes with Cain, they're avenged sevenfold. I'm telling you, you mess with me and mine, you will be avenged 77-fold. Don't mess with me. I can handle myself. Do you remember the temptation in the garden, you don't need God. 
You could be your own God. That's Lamech, the one who becomes the seventh generation, the symbol of the line of Cain. Then we return to Adam, verse 25. Adam had relationships with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Uh, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't miss that at the end of the chapter. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord with the line of Seth. Do you see our God of second chances working again for Adam and Eve? We don't know how many children they had. We know that Abel was killed. We know that Cain was cursed. And therefore, the hearts of his parents are broken. And we know that God says, I'm going to give you another son. And this one will start a new genealogy for you. And the genealogy of Seth is given to us in chapter 5, which is really fascinating because if you follow the genealogy of Seth, you will find that it's, it's laid out in the same way. When you get to the seventh generation, you see the one who is symbolic of the line of Seth. So if you'll skip down to chapter 5, verse uh, 23, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. By the way, you could tell people, I was there that one day when Pastor Doug covered 21 verses in 10 seconds. Okay, verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. That's Enoch. And by the way, there's an Enoch in the line of Cain. This is a different guy, right? This is in the line of Seth. Seventh generation, symbolic of the whole generation. And here's what it says. He walked with God for his entire life and then he was no more because God took him. All these others, so-and-so lived 921 years and he slept with his fathers. So-and-so lived 853 years and he slept with his fathers. So-and-so lived 716 years and he slept with his fathers. But then there's this guy, Enoch, he never slept with his fathers. He never returned to dust like Adam did. He never died. The Lord took him to heaven. He's one of two people in the Old Testament that didn't die. The other being Elijah, who were take, was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot, right? And he becomes this symbol of life, Enoch, whereas Lamech is a symbol of sin and death. Enoch becomes a symbol of purity and life. It's an amazing contrast, and it just reminds us of this. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the author of life, and he is holy, and he is just, and he cannot and will not have fellowship with sin. But at the same time, he is merciful, and he is gracious, and he is a God of second chances. So he is constantly reaching out. There is no degree to which you can mess up your life that God can't set it straight. There, there is no amount of death that can be the symbol of your life story that God can't replace it with new life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. And the enemy came to take away our lives and steal it from us. So God is merciful and gracious. He loves to redeem. He loves to give life where there's only death. He loves to reach out to those who have sinned against him and offer us new life. And he is worthy of genuine worship, which brings us full circle to where we started. I don't care how many babies you drop off a tower. I don't care how many times you hit yourself with a whip or where you crawl on your knees. You can't make up the gap between you and God. 
The gap is too large. The only way that gap could ever be made up would be if God was to fill the gap. And so what does he do in the person of Jesus Christ? He lays down the life of his own son, spills his own blood, the perfect lamb of God, to set us free from sin, and he closes the chasm that exists between us and him. And that can only happen in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the sacrificial system was supposed to remind us of. And that's what we're supposed to be reminded of every time we read these stories. Animal skins having to be, uh, animals having to die so their skins can be used to cover shame that comes from sin. The, the sacrificial uh, system that is, that is put in place even in the garden where, where Abel has to, to kill the first fruit of his flock. The Passover lamb, the, the picture of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac on the altar being sacrificed as a symbol until God stops him, all the way forward to the cross. And then we stop about 2,000 years ago now in history, and we focus our attention on this moment, on this mountain, on Calvary. And we see this cross, and on the cross hangs the only one in the history of humanity that didn't deserve to hang on a cross. And he gives his life for us. And we look back 2,000 years just as they were looking forward thousands of years with their sacrificial system. And we celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why we share in the Lord's Supper. It's just a look back. The God of second chances reaches out to us and says, don't forget how terrible your sin is. It costs Jesus his blood. And that blood is being offered to us. Cain chose to live and die in his sin, even though God reached out to him. But when Jesus Christ opened my eyes, when he reached into the mud pit that I had made in my life and pulled me out, reaching into that mud, he didn't get dirty, I got clean. And he set me free. And so I celebrate now the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not something to be horrified by. It's not something to be broken about. It is something to celebrate, and that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want us to close our time together today doing just that. Um, and if those who are going to be passing out the elements will prepare, uh, in just a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to be given some trays, and they're going to have little cups of grape juice and little pieces of bread. And the bread is symbolic of the body of Christ, the juice symbolic of the blood. And in that symbol, we're going to celebrate because Jesus has set us free. Now listen, if you're here today and all of that is just conjecture in your mind and you're not so sure any of that's true, if you're here today and you're just investigating that, I just ask you to just open your heart to God and give him a chance to show himself to you and, and say yes to Jesus. Like maybe today is the day when you stop pointing the finger at others and explaining away your sin. Maybe today's the day where you stop uh, complaining about the hand that you've been dealt and making excuses. Maybe today's the day that you stop trying to make up the gap that you know is there between you and God. Maybe today's the day when you just say, Lord, I get it. I submit you're going to be Lord and I'm going to follow you. Come into my life, wash away my sin, set me free. When you give your life to Jesus like that, he takes it and he replaces death with life. And so if you need to do that today, you can do it right now in the quiet of your own seat. For the rest of you, if you've already got a relationship with Jesus, this is the ultimate intimate worship. And we do it together as the body of Christ. And it's a way for you to celebrate him, to celebrate the fact that even now you keep stumbling and he keeps reaching out and making you clean. And as we celebrate, let's remember that there are all kinds of acts of worship that people have gone through that have not really been worship. For us today, let this be real worship. As we worship the Lord, through sharing in the Lord's Supper. As the ushers come forward to pass out the elements, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much that you have seen fit to reach out to us again and again and again, and that finally Jesus went to the cross to set us free. That we don't have to be stuck in the darkness of sin, but that we can live in the light of your grace. That your blood is enough. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We celebrate you together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Just take a little cup, take a cracker, hold on to it, pass the plate to the next person. Once everybody has been served, then we'll partake together. But as you wait for the plates to pass, perhaps maybe just spend some time in prayer, getting your heart right before God. not about the religious ritual it's about your heart We don't take the Lord's Supper to somehow make things right between him and us. We take the Lord's Supper because he has done what it takes to make things right between him and us. And we live as the beneficiaries of his loving sacrifice. Let's celebrate him together and worship as we partake. stand together. Father, as humbled worshipers, we stand before you aware of your greatness and aware of the contrast between that and who we would be without you. But as we sang today, we have been chosen, not forsaken, and we are who you say we are children of God, set free and given abundant life. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. To you be all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go let the Spirit shine through you. Other people need to know Jesus.